Today's Bible reading is taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 39. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, good morning. My name is John and add my welcome to Trinity Church Mount Parker online this morning. After reveling in God's no condemnation gospel last week, this morning we revel in God's no separation gospel. I'd like to begin by introducing you to David Brainerd. David was born on April the 20th, the year 1718 in America. Benjamin Franklin was 12 years old and would become president. Now, while David grew up going to church, David reports that it wasn't until he was 21 that he understood God's free grace for his sin in Jesus and personally received Jesus as his Lord and Saviour. <clears throat> so impacted by God's grace, the following year David entered Yale University. He wanted to be a preacher of God's grace to the people of Connecticut. At Yale, David began coughing up blood, his lungs already peppered with a tuberculosis that would eventually kill him. But he wasn't deterred. But things then went even worse when, despite being the top of his year academically, David was kicked out of university for saying that the liberal teachers there had no more of God's grace than a chair. And David was gutted. What was God doing? Didn't he want the gospel preached? Well, a group of Bible-believing pastors who went on to form the Society for Propagating Christian Knowledge, for SPCK, well, they heard about David and what had happened. They met up and recruited him to take the good news of Jesus to the Indians in Massachusetts. The first years were hard work. There were the personal challenges, the health challenges, along with the opposition. But harder still, no Indians became Christian. In the year 1745, David then travelled to preach to the Indians in New Jersey. Over those 12 months, some 130 Indians were saved into the truth of Jesus, just like David had experienced years earlier. But the following year, in 1746, David's TB flared up. He went on to recover at the house of another Christian preacher friend called Jonathan Edwards. While initially recovering, David relapsed and on October 9th, 1747, David Brainerd died. He was only 29 years old, I should say. Only eight of those years were Christian and just four years in missionary service sharing Jesus with people. The first three years bore no fruit. While we can all probably agree that his life was cut far too short, was it a life well lived or a life wasted? What do you think? Romans chapters 1 to 8. Well, it's like sitting in a trial in heaven's high court Jesus is judge and we the readers are the jury who need to come to a verdict. Jesus' apostle, Paul, he's been prosecuting God's case for eight chapters, laying out all the evidence why only God's gospel is able to save rebel humanity back into right relationship with God and guarantee them eternal life. Having carefully presented all the evidence, Paul has now begun his closing argument in Romans 8. Last week, we the jury heard him powerfully summarise why there is now no condemnation for those who are trusting in Jesus, because the Father, he did not spare his only Son, but delivered him up for us. This week, Paul closes his summation with a deeply personal 
and passionate finale. His singular focus is on God's unbreakable love for us in Christ. This love is more than able, not just to save us, to, to bring us through the suffering and home to God. And that brings us to the first of two points. The first is in verses 35 and 36. What is the suffering that threatens to separate us from God? If you've got a Bible at home, pick it up and have a look with me at verse 35 there, chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now it's an expansive list, isn't it? And if we're honest, it's a little bit of a scary list. Seven words describing a world that is groaning and suffering because of Adam's original sin and because of our own rebellion against God. I mean, there's the famine and nakedness. And so, too many in our world, they do go without food and clothes. Supposedly there are and is enough to go around. Then there's the general trouble and hardship that comes from doing life in death's waiting room. A trouble and hardship that I suspect some of us are painfully too familiar with. When Ella and Jaya were born, our two youngest, Ella got a chest virus a couple of weeks old and before we knew it, she was in Westmead Hospital in intensive care behind a looking glass. She had tubes coming out of her everywhere as she hung on to her life by a thread. A death shadow hovered in the room as Geeta and I, well, we hovered in each other's arms praying. And we felt so far away on the other side of the glass. And here we were, two medically trained professionals, parents, but powerless to protect our baby girl. And now here we are today, all humanity's fr fragility exposed bare by another unseen virus, bringing isolation and more separation, and the fear and the threat of death very real. As the Apostle Paul came to know, the hope of Jesus is a living hope. Like Jesus was raised to life, so too Jesus promises that all who live and die trusting in him, even though they die, Jesus promises they will rise to live with him, freed forever from all suffering and death. More than this, in this suffering world, the Spirit himself is with us, interceding for us. You know, while it was horrible being separated from Ella, at the same time, Gita and I were aware of God's presence and the peace of this beautiful Christian hope that he was near to us. That like the God of Psalm 121, he really was watching over our little girl while she slept. That whatever happened, whether she lived or died, our little girl really was safe in his hands. Now thankfully, Ella did recover. While for many others known to us, not so with their precious little ones. But through it all, they've clung to God and clung to God's word and God has remained faithful. Brings us back to Paul's list of suffering and hardships here. It's not just, I think, for believer and unbeliever alike, but I think the words seem nuanced to the hardships and sufferings that comes with being a follower of Jesus in this world and being on mission with Jesus. I think that's why Paul is quoting from Psalm 44 there in verse 36. 
For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Psalm 44 recounts the plight of a faithful, small remnant of God's people. Faithful believers who found themselves in exile experiencing God's anger and judgment. Now here's the stinger. It wasn't for their own sin or rebellion. It was because of the disobedience and rebellion of others. Have you ever had the experience of being punished for something you didn't do? When your only mistake was being there? Psalm 44 reports what God's people here experienced. In fact, all the sufferings in Paul's list and more, they were like sheep in an abattoir being led to their slaughter. And here's another stinger. They know it's God who's leading them there. As they cry out for God to intervene, it's why they can say to God and trust that it's for your sake that we are being killed all the day long. For your sake. You see, they know that their righteous suffering is somehow mysteriously, it's all according to God's plan, for God's glory. God's faithful suffering for the sin of others, that others might be saved, well, this takes us to God's sinless son, to Jesus and a cross at Calvary, doesn't it? Jesus, who said he must suffer many things, be rejected and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus, who then called the crowds and his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospel's, they will save it. Sounds a bit like that verse from Psalm 44 that Paul quotes in Romans 8, doesn't it? But whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospel's, they will save it. This beautiful promise of Jesus, it brings us to Paul's second concluding point there in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. The second Adam suffering that saves us and also seats us with Jesus as super conquerors. You see, if the first Adam got us into this mess, it's God's son and his second Adam who he's more than able to save us from sin, more than able to bring us through suffering and death and safely home to God. What does Paul say? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can Jesus' followers be more than conquerors? What is a more than conqueror? Paul actually invents a new word here, uh, literally super conqueror. Now, the word we'd use today is goat. G-O-A-T. Do you know what it means? Greatest of all time. Goat. Now, during this COVID season, SEN Radio, they ran a greatest of all time competition. Who are the greatest of all time sportsmen or sportswomen for every sport? And people voted. A list was compiled. Mr. Tennis, Roger Federer, basketball. Who would you pick? Hard to go past Michael Jordan. Boxing. Muhammad Ali won that easily. But people also had to then vote 
who the greatest of all time sports person was. That is, which super goat sits above all the other goats for sport? You see, this is Paul's point here. It's that Jesus is the greatest of all time, the ultimate super saviour, super conqueror in heaven and on earth. And because Jesus has defeated all people and powers who are against God and against God's people, it does raise the question, why wouldn't you want to be on Jesus' team with Jesus as your captain? It's like what happened every time a Caesar of Rome returned victorious from a battle. Caesar would ride out in front of his his soldiers who would come on behind him and then behind them would be the captives. And this is the image Paul has in mind. Is he Christ Jesus, he's out the front of his people as the super conqueror. Not of a country, not of a continent, but of the whole cosmos. Unlike Caesar, who had his foot soldiers fight for him, Jesus is God fighting for us. God alone, in Christ alone, who has fought and won the victory for us alone. And so Paul rightly concludes that knowing all these things, we Christians are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So as we turn for the home stretch in Romans 8, we the jurors in God's courtroom, well, we actually need to come to a decision, don't we? A verdict. Are we convinced of God's love for us in Jesus? If God's no condemnation, no separation gospel really is true, how might or how should this gospel change us? Well, this first point there in verses 38 and 39 is that nothing, nothing can separate us. What does Paul say? He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, Paul's using a number of pairs here, isn't he? Pairs that totally cover any place or space or time dimension. Heaven and earth means literally everywhere the cosmos we can see and the cosmos we can't, high and low, death and life. See, Paul is canvassing every possible goat contender that could possibly derail the salvation of Christ's people. And what's the answer? There is no person, no power in the universe, no disease or depression, no situation or suffering, no place or time dimension that Jesus cannot and will not Bring us through safely home to himself. Who could separate a Christian believer from God's love for them? That's just never going to happen. Christian people are they are not promised immunity from temptation, trials, tribulation or tragedy. But we are promised that whatever the trouble or suffering, it can never separate us from God's love for those who believe in Jesus. Well, what can we learn from some seasoned sufferers, like the Apostle Paul, for example? I discovered something this week. We turned to a place like 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, and 
Paul actually uses similar words as he does there in Romans 8.35. Words to recount the trials and sufferings for himself as he travels around from place to place in Asia and Europe preaching Christ. What did Jesus say to Paul to strengthen his, his man, to keep him going in the face of real rejection and danger? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Jesus says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made complete in weakness. Jesus is telling Paul that what we know is true for life, that it's in seasons of hardships and suffering when we often feel weakest that God shows us most clearly just how strong his love is to hold us, just how strong his grace is to sustain us. So whatever the season, may we be able to learn from Paul and say with him, Jesus, your grace is sufficient for me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. Again, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Jesus' word to Paul is Jesus' word to his own people. My grace really is sufficient for you. My grace really is sufficient to bring you through the suffering, whatever it is or may be. My grace really is sufficient to bring you even through death itself. And finally, to bring you home to enjoy resurrection life with me. Friends, there is no other way for people to be saved into God's long-suffering, sin-atoning love for them. Only through faithful followers of Jesus being willing to give up their rights and count the cost to ensure that this gospel message of God's love does indeed reach those who have not yet heard. Well, what of David Brainerd? History records, as short as his life was, that it definitely was not in vain. Jonathan Edwards, he was so humbled by David's determined faith in his suffering that in 1749 he wrote up his diaries and published them as the life of David Brainerd. John Wesley, William Carey, Robert McChain, David Livingston, Jim Elliot. They're just a few of the hundreds of Christians who God mobilised and sustained in Christian mission as they read and, and reread the life of David Brainerd. Now, it wasn't his many sufferings and trials. It was his determined conviction that God really is faithful. It was that he lived his life after he was saved as if he really did believe that the sufferings of this present time really are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so as we finish, a question for us. What could Christ's faithful at Trinity Church Mount Barker do while they wait for their next senior pastor? What could we be getting on with together while we wait for Sundays to get up and, and running again? Well, one of the many things I love about Jesus' people at Trinity Church Mount Barker, I've only been here a few weeks, but it's not only their love for people, but their desire to want to be used by God 
to give every person in the Greater Mount Barker community an opportunity to hear about and respond to God's love for them in Jesus. I guess here's my question for us, me included, while we wait. Are there small ways we could all begin fishing for people with Jesus? I mean, it's now okay to be getting together in small groups in our homes. Could we perhaps begin by just inviting a few people into our homes who are yet to know just how good it is to be part of a smaller group of believers who meet regularly to study the Bible and pray and share life together? And as we do pray in our homes, could we perhaps include some time to regularly pray for God to give each of us an opportunity just to have a go sharing this gospel of love with two or three people that God has put in our own lives. Perhaps we could even begin inviting some of these people into our homes for a feed or maybe some board games, uh, to watch the footy together, or perhaps even to watch church together online. Maybe followed by brunch. Friends, if it's true that it will always cost God's faithful in some little or not so little way to follow and fish for people with Jesus, then it seems wise that like the Apostle Paul, like David Brainerd, that we too are each convinced of God's unbreakable love for us and that we can honestly say with Paul, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.